Hi, this month's podcast was first aired on Premier Christian Radio as part of the Traveller's Tales series. In it I talk about why I went into medicine and then into psychiatry and about some ways in which mind and soul is making a difference. Traveller's Tales Welcome to Traveller's Tales from Livingston in Scotland. I'm Patrick Forbes and my traveller today is Dr Rob Waller, consultant psychiatrist. Welcome. Thank you. What's your earliest recollection of bumping into God? I was very privileged to be brought up in a, in a Christian home and I remember going to, I think they called it Scramblers. It was an Anglican church in London and uh, we met in this building with a tin roof so whenever it rained you couldn't hear a thing. But started, I think really just with the usual kind of things like many people do like, you know, colouring in the pictures of Bible stories and Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat and singing songs about God, and I, I suppose that's where it started. How did the journey go on from those earliest days of Sunday school and colouring in pictures? I think, like many people, it, it, it sort of stayed at that level for quite a long time, and um, I was probably sort of rather disenfranchised with Sunday school come my early teens. I think there was, there was one thing, I do remember going on a summer camp at one point, and we went down to this field where we all camped under canvas, a camp called Climping, down near the south coast, and uh, I do remember one meeting where I was sort of very aware that God did exist, and that um, this was something that one ought to take a bit more seriously. So I remember sort of talking to one of the leaders after the meeting, but probably didn't do much about things for sort of some years after that. What prompted then further involvement? I had a a teacher at school when I was doing my A-levels. I did did a biology A-level. And um, as always when you're doing a biology A-level, one of the topics that comes up is evolution. And um, my teacher was a Christian. And uh, we used to sort of take the mickey out of him mercilessly for, for being a Christian, both on that topic but on numerous other topics and also just generally for being a Christian. And uh, I was just always very impressed by sort of how he took it and you know how gracious he was and in actual fact looking back on it now he wasn't a a geek or anything of of any kind at all he is a really regular guy and some conversations with him and then also actually this was this was in my home church I decided to do a confirmation class I actually really enjoyed mine and we did a sort of overview of the bible and looked at some of the history and what some of the sort of key things were in Christianity and I actually really enjoyed it I suppose it was a bit like doing an alpha course at at just the right time in my life for me. I remember sitting down at the end of that with the curate, because you had to have an interview with the reverend if you were going to get done. And he said to me, he said, so tell me what these confirmation classes are all about. And I said, well, they're about, you know, Genesis and Moses. And, you know, I started giving him a history lesson. And he said, no, 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 you know, I'm not interested in what you were taught. I want to know what they're about and where God fits into all of this. And I I didn't really have a way of putting it into words. And he said something very simple along the lines of, well, God loves you and wants to reestablish a relationship with you, or words to that effect. And I thought, yeah, that sounds about right. And I think that was the moment where in my head it sort of Made clicked. Sense. And, you know, obviously I've learned more since, but that, that was the sort of first moment, really. What was it that pushed you into medicine? Well, it was the usual story, I suppose, of being good at science. I was at an extremely minor independent school in London. I'm very glad, actually, it wasn't like many uh, independent schools are. It wasn't an exam factory at all. You know, I think a lot of these schools are very academically pushy. It was a very relaxed school, lovely school, quite an old school, so it had a big tradition of sport and, and theatre and culture and music. But I was, um, you know, goodish at science, and they thought, well, you know, you ought to 
think about doing medicine and uh, ought to think about studying that. I did my work experience actually at the um, limb fitting centre in Roehampton which is where a lot of people who've had amputations go to get artificial legs fitted and I spent the first half of the week in the engineering lab because I was also interested in engineering and we did um, computer monitored carving and grinding of glass fibre and all these kind of things and computer detection, robotic legs and then I spent the second half of the week helping with the surgeons and the operations and the physio and the fitting and I decided that I was much more interested in that side of it and so decided to do medicine. Where did you study? I studied in Cambridge. And while you were at university what happened to the Christian connection? I think as I say although this was very much in my um, sort of upper sixth that, that I became a Christian. I didn't really have a chance to sort of do anything about that while I was in London because it was right in the middle of preparation for A-levels and I knew I was off to Cambridge next year. But, but certainly arriving in Cambridge was um, a great experience. And, uh, yeah, there's, there were sort of two things going alongside. I suppose chaplaincy is, you know, around the college chapel in, in the various colleges and halls of residences, but then there's also a university-wide Christian union. And I did I did rather a lot more with, with the Christian union during my time there, really enjoyed that, and I joined a local church as well. The chaplain was, he was just a great person around college. He was he was treasurer of the boat club. He was a regular kind of guy. And I think most importantly, he um, paid his way through Divinity School by being a cocktail waiter in London. <laughs> so um, every Tuesday evening, he <clears throat> used to have this little service in the chapel called Compline, and, uh, which I used to go along to because I quite liked it. And then a bunch of us used to go back to the um, chaplain's digs for cocktails, which was quite nice. <laughs> That's probably my, my main involvement with the college chapel. What was the attraction of psychiatry? I had absolutely no experience of mental health problems prior to doing my psychiatry attachment at medical school I mean like like many people I suppose I'd noticed that my grandparents were a little bit a little bit forgetful but I I had no experience of an elderly relative with dementia I had no experience of people near me you know appearing to have depression or anything like that and I mean part of that I suppose was just happenstance but also part of it was because I was doing a lot of sport at the time so I was traveling I was with a group of people who were very high achievers and I, I suppose you know in that group there wasn't a great deal of space or time given to people who were perhaps having to take some time out of their life with depression so so I had very little experience of it and the first person I met with a, a clear mental health problem was when I walked onto the ward at the start of my psychiatry attachment and met someone who was absolutely spectacularly manic and very high very elated very talkative quite disinhibited who the ward were able to get better in a matter of days or a couple of weeks and I thought well actually if that person hadn't had access to that kind of services they could have um, really made a mischief of their life and done some things they would significantly regret and it's very likely the mania would have continued for a lot lot longer and I thought yeah that that was actually one of the quickest cures I'd ever seen in medical school if that makes sense you know we saw a lot of people maybe had a definitive operation but a lot of the illness was Long it was term. quite long-standing. And, I mean, there is a lot of long-standing illness in psychiatry, but it, it is also an illness where, you know, with the right kinds of problems and the right kinds of people, you can do tremendous things. ADHD, perhaps, is another example where you can make huge differences to a child's education relatively simply. Providing the education authorities cooperate and help it to happen, I guess. I think they do. I think, I think for, I mean, this is a slightly different topic, but, you know, children, children with severe HD, ADHD support is available. Uh, I'm sure listeners will be aware that it's a controversial diagnosis, particularly as you get towards the more mild end of the spectrum and there's a whole bunch of things to do with behavioural and per- parental input that's equally important. But I think, you know, getting back to the psychiatry, I thought, you know, wow, this is significant and this is a group of people who, up until relatively recent 
recent hadn't had these kind of advances and services. And I thought, well, this is a, a young speciality in many ways, and this is going to change a tremendous amount during my lifetime. And I like the patients as well. I mean, you know, there's debate as to whether you call them patients or clients and service users. Or in service. The hospital well, I, yeah, I think so. And I think, I mean, I think it depends what hat I've got on. I mean, if I'm talking more from a counselling perspective, I'm quite happy to talk about clients. But you know, when I'm working with people who are who are severely unwell, who are coming to me as a doctor, patience is often the best way to describe the situation. And my wife's a, a teacher. She can handle a schoolroom full of 30 screaming young children. I can't. I'm quite happy talking to people who are very unwell with mental health problems all day. She's not. So, you know, I, I suppose I have a special grace in that area. And, and I thought, you know, what? I, I like this. I find it interesting. I think the brain is the most interesting organ in the body. You know, if the cardiothoracic surgeons want the heart, they can have it. It basically pumps. It's got some moving, be- moving parts. But, you know, I, I think the brain is the really interesting bit. Definitely. I mean, the brain is tremendous thing i mean i you know there's different numbers kicked around but it's something like you know 10 to the 10 or 10 to the 11 neurons you know i mean there's almost more neurons than there are uh, not quite atoms in the earth obviously but you know there are vast vast numbers more than we could ever conceptualize neurons in the brain it's all interrelated one of the focuses in in psychiatry at the moment is on a a bit of the brain at the back called the cerebellum it's only about the size of a, a tangerine but it it contains half the neurons in the brain so the rest of the brain is relatively underpopulated in comparison to the cerebellum, and it, it's related partly to movement disorders like Parkinson's disease we know, but there's increasing evidence it's related to emotion, how we process context. You know, what is it makes me realise that this is a, a microphone standing on a table in front of me rather than, you know, something being suspended in midair or cucumber or something? You know, how I make all those kind of connections is, is, is what the brain's able to do. So at what point then did you start making the connections between the church as an institution and psychiatry? I think it's pretty clear that if, if you do a lot of work with severe mental illness, even though that's towards the medical end of the spectrum, it's by no means just a brain problem. The story I was telling earlier of the patient who was spectacularly manic and got better very quickly is relatively rare in the sense that that, that was a person who was purely ill and a, a pure medication treatment was was all that was needed in that particular case and it just so happened they had a predisposition to develop that particular illness but the vast majority of people either there's other things going on so for example during the course of an illness they may lose their job lose their friends lose their house develop a degree of depression as a result it's also rare that you get as 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 pure a response to medication so we need to be thinking about alternative approaches such as you know, using social social approaches, you know, reintegrating people with, with, with communities, with housing, financial support, and also psychological support as well, because there's a whole spectrum of mental illness right the way through from, you know, the most biological brain problems. I mean, people often say that, you know, psychiatrists and neurologists share an organ, and they do, they do to a certain extent. So neurologists do a lot of work with epilepsy and with Parkinson's disease and things that you can measure on machines and things that you can see under a microscope but if you talk to any neurologist they'll tell you that Parkinson's disease is not just a cellular problem that causes a tremor it's got an emotional component it's got a behavioral and personality component and that begins to blend into the area where psychiatry works which is around illnesses like dementia bipolar affective disorder schizophrenia and then moving from that Still within mental health services, but perhaps psychiatry having less of a core role, there's a whole bunch of 
situations where um, psychology and psychological approaches and therapy are particularly important, um, working with anxiety, depression, personality disorder. And sometimes psychiatrists and medication have a role in that. Sometimes psychiatrists have a role if it's helping plan a complex case, trying to get a package of care together for somebody. And then right towards down to the end of the spectrum, that perhaps never comes into contact with mental health services, but things to do with uh, self-esteem, uncertainty, doubt, all, all those kinds of things that many of us suffer from time to time and some of us suffer from more than others. And um, perhaps you wouldn't want to call it an illness, but you'd certainly want to call it a problem for which there are techniques that are helpful. And um, faith, I think, is very related to those things. You know, I mean, low, low self-esteem, for example, dealing with a difficult experience of a father and how that helps you relate to Father God. Those sort of things, you know, the, the sort of counselling and, and the spiritual approaches are very related. But even at the other end of the spectrum where things are very biological, these are still people with illnesses who, who struggle, who are on journeys, who have the, or have an ability to have a relationship with God. So I think, I mean, faith comes in all the way across the spectrum in a number of different ways. Are you encouraged or depressed by the way in which institutional churches approach mental health? I'm encouraged in some ways, depressed in other ways. I think churches can be very good at providing a level of support to people in their local community who perhaps other organisations such as you know the local pub or the local sports club are, are not as tolerant of. And most congregations will be able to find you know, two or three people in their congregation who are obviously ill. And I, I mean that in the sense that, you know, to a certain extent, you can tell from the other side of the room that this person is, 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 is mentally unwell or has a serious problem with drink or something. And I think churches can be very tolerant of those places. The, the, the two questions I'd ask would be, is it tolerance or is it full inclusion? I think sometimes it's tolerance as opposed to full inclusion because, sadly, some of the structures in churches, such as uh, you know complicated annual general meetings or Bible studies, small groups, those sorts of things, are not necessarily suited to people who struggle with social occasions, who are not perhaps the most academic, some people, or people may be very, very academic, but they, they can't bring their academia to bear on what's being studied and, as a result, can end up feeling useless or, or second-rate as Christians. And although churches do tolerate people... And many churches do go the extra mile in this, don't hear me wrong, but I think churches do tolerate people to an extent, but one of my responsibilities working for the NHS is to go beyond beyond the extra mile. And, the, you know, the NHS has an amazing track record of working with the most vulnerable and most deprived in society. And um, I suppose my slight concern is that to a certain extent the NHS and the, the welfare state have taken over that role, which churches used, I think, to be more involved in. And I think, you know, there's still some sort of work and debate to be doing around that area. How do you help that to happen? Well, I think one thing is to encourage churches that um, their contribution is really, really valued. So in, in people who have got significant health problems, be it a medical problem or a, a mental health problem, I know as a psychiatrist that if someone's going to church, it's actually really helpful if somebody from church comes along to the appointment with them because I think, wow, that person's got some support. They're part of a community and I've, I've met them now and I can begin to trust them and involve them in things. So... So I think stopping that divide between, you know, church on Sunday and this person has psychiatric support or social services support during the week, you know, let, let's, there's only one person involved in this, so let's have one approach to their, their care and their support. I think churches are aware of this, but, you know, perhaps it's a gentle challenge, which is to say that if a person comes along every Sunday 
and is obviously struggling, but you never see them any other time in the week. Or if they do come along during the week, they don't fit in as well. Then what needs to change? Maybe what needs to change is what you're doing during the week rather than um, them. Th- than them, because they haven't changed, you know. So, and then there's the whole sort of other end of the spectrum, which is um, where again some churches are very good at this, but I think there's a huge sort of iceberg phenomenon going on here, which is people who are people who are not obviously mentally ill, people who struggle with things like. Uh, Obviously, if someone's got a very severe eating disorder, it will be obvious. But a, a, you know, a less a less obvious eating disorder that you wouldn't know unless you saw them eat, or depression or anxiety that you you may not know if if they're not going through a particularly bad bad time. I'm writing a book on worry and rumination at the moment, and one of the things about worry and rumination is that when people are going through a more obviously depressed and anxious episode, they do get a bit more support from friends. But when they go back to, quote, just worrying, unquote, everyone thinks they're fine. But in actual fact, they're not fine. They still, they still know, need help. St- still need help, still need understanding, still need support. So I think, you know, how we, how we help people with invisible illnesses, which, which for them are just as real, I think is, is, is quite a challenge. And some churches have employed counsellors, for example. And, you know, I think invariably having a counsellor on the staff is a positive step forward. But they're only ever going to be able to see a very small percentage of the church population and hopefully and i think this is the case with many councillors they're actually employed to reach out to the local community as much as they are to council within the church and also sometimes there's a sense that if you've if you've got a councillor we think oh you know so and so's seeing the councillor so that problem's being dealt with so i don't have to be involved yes and you know so. i i'm not quite sure how to be friends with someone who's depressed because i've never been depressed myself so i don't know what to say therefore they're seeing the councillor so that's okay and i mean there can that be this me off the hook to a certain extent and like i say you know i hope that in in the more forward thinking and the more thought through churches that won't be happening but i do know that it happens rather more than i'd like it to What's needed then for the church to revolutionise or improve its help for people with psychiatric problems? I think the vast majority of what we're talking about is, I wouldn't call them necessarily psychiatric problems, but, you know, mental health problems, dealing with emotions full stop. Charismatics got into enough trouble for trying to bring emotions <laughs> into the church, and you know here we are now talking about bringing another kind of emotion in, and it, it, it's not always well received. Should I laugh now or shouldn't I? Are we allowed to applause at the end? Applaud at the end of something that's very good. I mean, you would do if you were anywhere else apart from church, Absolutely. but you know it's. And I think you know similar kinds of questions would be: Well, am I allowed to cry? Am I allowed to feel anger or righteous indignation at this point? You know, and I, I think questions like that and. Um, one of the things that, that we do is put quite a lot of material on the website, and I'm sure we'll come to talk about that later, but um, uh, one of our colleagues, Kate Middleton, has just done a fantastic talk called If We Claim to Be Without Emotion. And it's just an overview of the range of emotions that Jesus experienced, the core aspect of emotions in our lives. So, for example, do we all really want to be Captain Spock from Star Trek? I don't think so, because... Actually, it's not Captain Spock, Commander Spock, whatever he is, because actually it's Jim Kirk who saves the day. Jim Kirk is the passionate one. He's the one who wants to go and rescue the girl. Whereas if, if, we're, if we were all as logical as Spock... Cold logic. We'd yeah. play safe the whole time. It would be very uninteresting. This so does not compute. You have to let emotions in. And when you let emotions in, you take the risk that emotions are going to go awry at some point. It's, it's the risk of having... You know, sin in the world and, and free will is that at some point we will sin. You know, it's the same risk. You know, what would you rather have, a bit of sin in the world or no free will? And I think most people probably say, well, actually, I'd quite like the free will. The free will is the important thing. And I'd, I'd probably say, well, actually, you know, the emotions are the important thing. And that means that they will at times get out of kilter. 
need support, it need talking about, and at times that will approach a clinical level where more specific interventions might be needed. But it will be more truthful and more honest. I think, and more fun. And more fun. And more fun. I've, I've got um, two or three friends who during their life have been detained under the Mental Health Act for doing interesting and slightly crazy things, and I'm sure they'd say the same thing. And they're great people because they've kind of, you know, as far as... Well, they have lived a bit, and, you know, they they don't need to sort of hide behind the social mask of proprietary. And they think, well, you know, I don't need to pretend that I'm perfect because I know I'm not. And it's it's kind of sort of out there. And I think, you know, you meet people from much more diverse backgrounds than than my own, and you see that it's real, it's raw, it's, it's... I like it. It's much more fun and great friends to have. Uh, so, you know, first of all, let, let's, let's get emotions out there. Let's get emotions on the map and let's start talking about them. It doesn't mean every sermon needs to be about them, but let's understand emotions as humans. And let's understand that if we're going to have emotions, you have to have broken emotions sometimes. Tell me about the website. Well, the website is is part of Mind and Soul. Mind and Soul, I think, probably sort of is your your first thing is what are we going to do about it well we've started doing a thing called mind and soul and thing is probably the best description for mind and soul a slightly more polite term might be a movement and it it really is a movement to sort of try and shake the church in in this sort of area and the website is is part of that and we've been tremendously blessed with resources audio video articles user interactions people can log in post comments in chat forums all sorts of things like that um the web address by the way if you've got a pen and pencil already as they say is www.mindandsoul.info and there is lots and lots and lots on there you know the page hits are well up into the thousands per day and i think it's so exciting to sort of get resources out there that are non-technical that are interesting You'll find stuff if you're a professional Christian. You'll find stuff if you're a mental health professional. You'll find stuff if you're just a person who's struggling or a carer or somebody who works with in, in that kind of area, you know, a charity worker of, of some kind. So there's all kinds of levels of, of information out there. But fundamentally, it is aimed at the lay level. But I do want to say that doesn't mean the professionals won't get stuff from it. I think professionals sometimes have a tendency to hide behind long words and jargon. erudite articles and jargon. And actually, a lot of the stuff that's on there is is fairly challenging, is is fairly sort of in your face, which is like, okay, well, these are the issues. What are we going to do about this? And I, I think professionals will go to it perhaps understanding what's written there, but hopefully being challenged afresh and also encouraged that there's other people doing doing this kind of stuff, whereas a lot of people will go there for information or advice or, or to ask questions. What's the role of prayer and mental health? I think it's the same as the role of prayer anywhere else. First of all, you're told to do it, so we do it. Secondly, it works, so we keep on doing it. Thirdly, God is sovereign, therefore it doesn't always work in the way that we want it to work. There's aspects to this where understanding emotions and mental health problems should be seen as a journey and that it's not meant to get a quick fix. And God doesn't provide miracles where lessons need to be learnt. But part of it is also around illness and that as people of faith we should pray expectantly for, for healing and not be surprised when healings occur but not take our toys home when, when healings don't occur. So I, I think we have to take a range of approaches which is that we should, we should pray expectantly, we should not just wait, we should wait actively so we should pursue other things at the same time while we're praying and that, that we should do it because we're told to. I don't have any problem with you know right across the whole range of the spectrum you know a a quiet prayer here and there right the way through to full healing prayer for half an hour an hour at a time you know i I don't think it particularly matters my my slight concern about the sort of more 
charismatic end of prayer and healing is to treat the person with dignity. There's a whole bunch of stories that have been told around things like deliverance ministry and, and, and things like that, which make me cross, you know, in the same way that you would probably cringe if you were watching one of these United States television programs and the, 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 the sort of healer dude on the stage had this person in the wheelchair and sort of dragged them to their feet and pushed the wheelchair away and told them they could walk and let go of them. The person fell flat on their bottom. That would make me cross because I think God can heal in that situation. But actually what you're doing there is you're getting in the way. Well, you're getting in the way and you're making <clears throat> a mockery and you're embarrassing the person. And many people with mental health problems, either it's the cause of their illness or it's the consequence, will have had quite enough embarrassing experiences in their life already. So I have a very simple approach to prayer, which is that, you know, the, the, the power of prayer is in the name of Jesus. So you pray in the name of Jesus and don't necessarily go too much further and um, one of the models of deliverance I, I like is from uh, IHOP the International House of Prayer in Kansas and they're a very charismatic very deliverance orientated church and ministry but they're very clear in their teaching on ministry you know the first thing you do is you say to the person is there evil here and if the person says yes, then you might follow the deliverance route. But if the person says no, you just pray healing and blessing and move on. You know, you don't sort of insist on evil being there. It must there. be evil. must be evil here. You know, well, look, there's evil everywhere ever since Genesis 3. Of course there is, you know. And so they just say, is there evil there? And, and then what you do is if, if the prayer is not, quote, working, unquote, on that particular day, you come back later. And that's what they say. And they're, they're like I say, an extreme almost at the extreme end of the sort of charismatic healing and deliverance spectrum, but, but they're very clear. Through. The dignity of the person is paramount here, and the sovereignty in the name of Jesus, of Jesus is a thing that works, um, not you shouting loudly at this point. So I'm in favour of prayer and healing for a number of reasons. I'm always not in favour of people being embarrassed, ridiculed, and made to feel stupid for the sake of someone else feeling good. Given half a chance, to whom would you give a nice Bible Society Bible and why? And we'll do it with enormous pleasure. Well, I... Probably let you decide where it's going to go to, but I think let, let's give it to someone who's young, starting out in their Christian studies, perhaps you know, getting into some full-time Christian study next year, and they can have that as their main study Bible. Well, we'll send it to you, and you can find the person. That would be a nice challenge for you. <laughs> OK, I'll see if I can think of someone. Dr Rob Waller, thank you very much indeed for being my traveller today. Listen again, same time next week, for Traveller's Tales. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Travel.